Hello and welcome once again to the 12 Inquiries. I'm Luis and with me as ever is my co-host David. And today's episode is a little bit of a weird one because we're basically talking about what we've left behind. And we decided to do a little experiment to see if maybe we shouldn't have left some of those things behind. So David, why don't you tell us what are the things that you decided that you were going to focus on trying to reclaim for a brief experiment? And then I'll introduce mine and we can go from there. All right. Sounds fair. Yeah. I'm looking forward to this one. So I got three pieces of homework, three little experiments. The first was instead of typing in my journal for the last week in the morning, I wrote on paper uh, and I can talk a little bit about how that went. The second one, I read the paper version of two different newspapers, the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, instead of using the iPad apps, which is my regular go-to. And then the last one, which was a bit of a failure, <laughs> was that I tried to use um, MP3s instead of Spotify to listen to music intentionally. Uh, and we can talk about that a bit too. What about yours? So my three things were, the first one was that I was going to just use phone calls to communicate with people. No messages, no SMS, just straight up 90s style. You need to reach me, call me. If I need to reach you, I will call you. The second one was to focus on using a digital camera, an actual physical digital camera instead of my smartphone to take photos. And the third one was not to use streaming services, not so much music, more focused on film and television shows for basically the weekend. All three on my end were unbelievable ab abysmal failures. So I, I'd be more curious in hearing what your expectations were going into this. I, I know for myself that I thought that this was going to be a really fun little experiment. And in my head, I was, it was going to be a little bit like time traveling. I was very, very excited going into it, into this. Yeah. When you proposed this, I was like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm down to do this experiment. And I thought that I already knew what the differences were going to be because it's not like I never write on paper. I do still occasionally write in a notebook and I was like, yeah, yeah, I, I, I know what it's like to write in a notebook. Uh, but why don't I start there? Because as I was not just doing it, but also thinking about what is the difference of writing on paper instead of typing on my laptop? I did notice some pretty serious changes, at least in how I journaled in the morning. It's not like I was, you know, like writing on paper for work, but for journaling, writing on paper feels like painting on a blank canvas. Like you just have this sheet of whiteness looking at you and you have to slowly create something on that page. It was much more purposeful it was much more descriptive and it didn't feel so rushed. And then when I switched back to typing on, on my iPad, it's like, there's just this huge accumulation of texts. I'm copying and pasting things from, you know, like different internet sites or emails or whatever. And so typing feels much more like sculpture. Like you've got this big block of marble text and that you have to strip things away to make it coherent instead of being deliberate and creating something. So if I, if I were to ever try to write a novel or poetry or anything that's really much, or a short story, anything that's more focused on like describing what's around me or the characters, I would definitely do it on paper. If I want to 
synthesize and make associations between things, there's just no way. I mean, typing, being able to hyperlink and copying and paste, it changed my mindset as I was doing the composition, which is something that now that I'm hearing myself say it, I guess sounds a little bit obvious, but it, it really felt like a revelation as I was doing it. Which one felt faster in terms of the thought appearing in your head and you putting it down? I don't mean whether you write faster than you type. I meant forming the structure of the sentences and getting them, like deciding this is what I'm writing. Which one felt faster? Typing felt faster because I wasn't so deliberate about it. In fact, I remember kind of a gesture as I was writing it on paper. I would like bring the pen to my lips, you know? as this habit of pausing of like, wait a minute, what do I want to say? And when I'm typing, I don't really take the time to pause and think, what do I want to say? It just comes out very quickly. It's, it's much more stream of consciousness. So I feel like there's more of a filter when I'm writing on paper. And I don't know why that is, but I have a hunch that it's kind of the same taking photographs that you, you question more what is it that I want to take a photo of? I don't know if that rings true for you. Completely. Speaking of the digital photography, I want to talk about a thing that I witnessed this weekend hanging out with my now seven-month-year-old niece, which was that she's starting to connect with the sensation of frustration. And I was trying to get her get her down for a nap uh, in her stroller. And it was something that I'd done numerous times in the previous six months very successfully. And this time she was she was getting frustrated because she wasn't falling asleep. So she'd go through her little rituals. She like pulls a little blanket up onto her face and she would look like she was about to settle down and then something would frustrate her. And then she'd like kick out her little legs. And it was, it was, it was absolutely adorable. But I realized that that was actually a really big part of my own experience with these experiments this weekend. And perhaps nowhere so much so as with digital photography smartphone or rather computational photography has made me incredibly lazy. I have given up so much control, but also so much knowledge for the sake of speed and convenience. So when I was using the digital camera, and this is not a bad, I wasn't using like an early 2000s digital camera. I was using a Ricoh GR from 2000. 14, I think, or 13. So not ancient. And yet having to think about what exposure mode I was using and what sort of autofocus I was using and the fact that the camera would easily get tripped up if there was like a light source behind the person or just different skin tones. I got I I was that seven-year-old-month-old baby, you know, kicking his feet out, going like fuck this, you know, this is, this makes me feel, feel clumsy. Whereas I could have gotten the photo already and I missed a lot of shots and that frustrated me a tremendous amount. And there was some element of unpredictability that got reintroduced in the process, which was fun, but not enough so that I didn't cheat and immediately pull out my cell phone and take some photos just to make sure that I had a usable one. And this was a digital camera. This wasn't film, which would 
push the needle even further in the take a pause, figure out what you want to do. You've only got 24 or 36 shots on this roll of film. It was, it was a really remarkable experience to realize what little tolerance I had for frustration. Right. Did, did you see that our friend Dulce is doing, is like going into the dark room and developing photos from a film camera and then posting pictures on Instagram of her going into the dark room, which is like a great little meta commentary on it. The photos are, are delightful. They really are. It was funny because I immediately was like, oh, my God, those black and whites are amazing. And I was like, I wonder what she's like. I wonder what app she's using. Right. <laughs> exactly. Man, what you just said reminds me so much of this chapter from um, Robert Persig's book, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. And there's this one chapter in the middle where he's just in his workshop working on his motorcycle. It's the slowest, most boring chapter. And I think that's a point of it. And he's talking about the concept of stuckness. And how he's just trying to screw this one screw into the engine of his motorcycle and it's not working and he doesn't know why it's not working and he's going to the manual of the motorcycle and it doesn't make sense to him and he's trying to figure it out. And then finally, he figures it out. And this thing that was causing him so much irritation and fear and feeling like a loser that he's not able to do this, all of a sudden he's like, oh, of course that's all it was. And all of that frustration just kind of you know goes away. And now he's in love with his motorcycle and he's so proud that he was able to fix his motorcycle. And I, I think that as things have become so convenient, we've really lost patience for stuckness. It's like, no, <laughs> we, this, this stuckness shouldn't be a part of our life anymore. So that's, it's interesting because as you talked about that, I immediately thought to my closest parallel, which is that I, I'm like you, a geek that oftentimes troubleshoots technology problems. And in the past few weeks, I, I tackled a couple of them that required quite a bit of patience. One of which was, I have a Logitech MX Master 3S mouse, which I love, but the Logitech software is shit. It's absolute crap. And no matter what I did, I had lag with this brand new mouse, whether I used Bluetooth or the dongle, it was driving me nuts. I spent the better part of a few days digging into forums, just reading people just bitch about it until finally someone said, I uninstalled the software and that made it better, but then I can't customize the bot the buttons. And mm -hmm. I was like, okay, so I uninstalled it. That definitely improved. I'm like, okay, what's next? And, and another person was like, oh, just install Better Mouse, which is a third-party indie-developed piece of software that has basically like reverse-engineered, I imagine, how to program the Logitech mouse. And it gives you all the functionality back without any of the bloat. And when I finally got to that point, it was it was that it was I was suddenly in love with this mouse that had cost me a hundred bucks and that was driving me nuts. And now suddenly I was happy again. And the same thing happened with a speaker when I finally realized that if I wanted good audio, I needed a USB to optical out little adapter dongle that I bought on Amazon. Both things took a tremendous amount of patience to like wade through conversations, YouTube videos, until I finally figured out what was causing the issue. And there I didn't really seem to have a problem with stuckness. I, I willingly mm -hmm. waded into it with my, you know, mental galoshes and kept going until I figured it out. You know, this touches a little bit on the topic of, topic of convergence that we keep coming back to also, because if you have different devices for different things, if you have audio recorder and a camera, you use those specific devices enough and you learn about their quirks, 
that you can problem shoot over time and fix those things. Like I, I still remember pretty well how to fix the mirror on my SLR. Whereas if I'm going to try to fix something related to the camera on my iPhone, I would, you know, it's like, there's no way it's too jumbled together. It's interesting. My experience with that, it's not that I find convergence harder to troubleshoot because I, in fact, my camera did this weird thing where it was suddenly like, it kept trying to focus in and out and it wouldn't stop. So like the, it would never fix on a focus. So I switched to a third party camera app and it wasn't doing it. So I was like, oh, it's a software. So I restarted the phone and then it was fine. I'm very comfortable. And maybe that's it. Are you comfortable with the space in which you're being asked to, to be stuck in? And when it comes to software and computers, iPhones, I'm really quite comfortable being stuck in those things. Other things, not so much. I'm going to talk about a yeah. very different kind of hardware. I've been dealing with, you know, kind of an uptick in my high blood pressure or it was in December. So I had to go see a cardiologist and he put me on new meds and it was a different, and it was funny because he was, he was troubleshooting me and he's like, all right, we're going to do these for two weeks and then we'll meet again. And then we did it. He's like, okay, they seem to be working. We're going to keep you on them for another two weeks, but I need you to go get all these blood tests done because I want to rule out other things. And it was weird to be on the receiving end of it, but he was like, this was his jam, right? This is what he does. The guy was a good cardiologist. So I think a big part of it is, are you comfortable being stuck in certain things? So whether that's the deliberate stuckness of I'm pausing while I hold the pen in my mouth to figure out what I'm going to write because I can't delete the sentence and I don't want to have to scratch it out because it'll look bad on my journal or, you know, the stuckness of... I'm using a digital camera and the autofocus isn't magic like most smartphones. So I have to actually pay attention to what I'm doing. I, I used to be really good at that other stuckness, the to taking photo stuckness. I used to revel in it. I've become really bad at it. Interesting. Okay. So we could, we could keep going on this one for a while, but I want to skip ahead to your experiment of not messaging people but instead calling them since that was the one that i was most excited about because you called me a psychopath on a previous episode for calling people on the phone so i was very excited for you to become a psychopath what to happened to be clear not calling people calling people out of the blue so i, I, I just <laughs> want to distinguish there what happened was two things one i i, I immediately forgot about it i i just I got messages and I just instinctively, you know, responded to them. People were getting in touch with me, so I would answer. I it took me a while to realize, oh right, shit, I'm not supposed to do that. And when I thought of picking up the phone to call the person, it just felt like showing up at their house and pissing in their backyard instead of using the the bathroom. I like it felt so That's amazing. <laughs> and because I hadn't had like this previous conversation with anybody except uh, my my partner Alma, whom I saw all weekend, so I had no reason to call her. Imposing it on other people felt precisely like that, like just this enormous imposition. So the only person that I ended up calling sort of out of the blue was you a few minutes after we spoke because I remembered something. A few minutes after yes, I exactly. called you. I was yes. the one to call you on Sunday morning. So when I called you on Sunday morning, did it feel like I was pissing in your backyard? It felt like you're that one friend where I'm like, yeah, he does that, but it's fine. Like he does it in the corner, <laughs> you know, like 
not exactly showing his thing. Not, he's, he's like polite, polite about, about it. it. <laughs> He'll kick some dirt over it. It's fine. I mean, I feel like people making the phone call or who are thinking about making the phone call overestimate how much they think it will be an intrusion on other people and that most people are delighted to get a phone you, call out of the blue. That's my that's You my have mentioned that before. And one of the things that I have decided that I want to do, especially with close friends, is to take the opportunity to make that phone call. Whereas oftentimes I don't. My, my buddy Noah messaged me this morning to send me an article about the top five taco places in Mexico. And he wanted to know if, if, if it was legit. I only knew two of the five, by the way. And it should, he, he should have called. That's a conversation, man. Like, let's pick up the phone and call me. Or I should have called him instead of just responding via text message. So one of the things, I, I doubt that I'll ever be a person that's just going, that I'll ever, again, because we all once were, a person that just calls people out of the blue. But I think I'm going to take the opportunity when somebody reaches out to go, actually, can I call you? Instead of just responding via text message. Okay, we're going to, we're going to check up on that in a future episode to see if you actually do it. And that was a huge conversational clickbait to say that you only know, knew two of the five top Takadillas in Mexico City that I'm not going to take because I'll take it down a whole, that's a whole other, other rabbit hole. <laughs> But it's interesting that you say that because about the link that he sent you a link and he wanted your reaction to it because that's why I called you. There was a link that I wanted to send to you. And then I remembered that you were in the midst of your experiment. Unbeknownst to you. So I called you up and I was like, there's a link that I want to send to you, but instead we're going to talk about it on the phone. So I feel like it was a more interesting exchange than had I just sent you a link, which I do to you all the time and you do to me all the time. But I am bombarded by links every I like wake up and WhatsApp messages, Instagram, email. It's just a collection of probably 30 links by the time I wake up in the morning. And I'm not able to react to all of them. I mean, it's a weird thing to say, because it's not like I would like 30 phone calls in the morning to talk about each of them. But maybe we can just like hold on to the links that we send to our friends and instead have a conversation where we have, you know, talk about multiple things at once. This is the part where I very shamefully admit that I am one of those people that will often comment or react on an article that someone sent me, even though maybe the only thing that I read was the title or opened it and like kind of skimmed the first paragraph and they're like, oh, I know what this is about. And then I will opine on it. And at the same time, when I'm reading something interesting, I have, I'm like a child who is so excited to send it that I rarely finish reading it before I've already sent it to five people, tweeted it, and now put it on Mastodon. Oh my God. That is worse than peeing in someone's backyard. That is, that is, it's peeing on someone's face, R. Kelly style. What's the impulse to, to share something with someone else that you that, haven't cause read because it, it sounds cool and I want to be cool. Like it's it's really stupid. It's that banal. It's this sounds super interesting, and I'm ninety percent sure that if I read it, I, my opinion won't change. So I want to send it to people that I want to think highly of me, and I want to put it on social media so that I'm the reason somebody comes across this first. It's so funny because I I definitely get get links from other people that I discover, you know, I read them and I'm like, Oh, what did you think about this? And they're like, Oh, I didn't read, I didn't read the article. And I think that's a big part of why 
I end up just not paying attention to a lot of links that, that come at me, which feels shitty. Or sometimes I'll just like give it a thumbs up like on, right. on iMessage and not even read it. It really does feel like it cheapens communication a lot. Whereas, so this article that I sent you, was, it was about Bob Dylan complaining about how cheap and easy it is to listen to music. And maybe that's a segue to talk about MP3s and streaming a little bit. Um, but I thought we had a pretty good exchange. Not only did we have a conversation about it on the phone, but then afterwards you called me back a couple of minutes later to talk about it. I loved it. Talk about and it, it, was, it was really funny because it, it then made me want to know more about it in a way that if you'd sent the link, sending a link puts it on a shelf somewhere, right? And it's super easy to go, I'll circle back to it. And you very rarely do. I think anybody who has Instapaper or Pocket or now Reader can attest to by saving it for later, yeah. it feels like an achievement, though it absolutely is not. So when you called me and told me about it, it was it was great. It was like somebody recommending a film, not by sending me a link to the IMDb, but by telling me about why they thought it was good. And ironically, the interview with Bob Dylan, the part that I want to talk about is where he said it's become too easy to listen to music. You don't search it out. You don't care about it. You don't know who it is. You have no idea what album it's on. And how he's, you know, he does the thing of buying the record and he's got like his vintage record player from the thrift shop in Oregon. He always has to just be the coolest guy. And I guess he is. But it's very related to to what we're talking about. And so that's what I thought was going to happen to me with my experiment of going back to MP3s. I have a external hard drive with 500 gigabytes of MP3s, which I'm realizing for anyone under 25, they're like... What does that mean? Is that a lot? Is that a little? Um, but it's a lot. At least it was a lot back in the day. I don't know how many albums, but a ton of albums. And the way that we accumulated that many MP3s is I downloaded music from LimeWire and other websites. I put them on this hard drive and then would literally hand the hard drive mm -hmm. to a friend and say, here's my library, add yours. And then they would pass it on to another friend. So there were five of us who were all contributing music to this to this hard drive. And what I thought would happen listening to the MP3. So I, I used a pair of uh, swimming headphones that are MP3 only. Like they don't connect to your to your phone. I had to plug them in through USB to my computer and drag the the files over. And it was fine. I listened to a couple of albums and I remembered what it was like to skip over the songs on the albums that I love, but that there are songs that I don't like. It was nothing revolutionary. You know, there was a lot of nostalgia. I remembered certain times in my life when I was listening to these albums a lot, but it just felt like I was visiting my past. I didn't have that sense of when I was younger and I would go to Lose Records in San Diego and find that album and be like, oh my God, is this the album that I'm going to spend $15 of my paycheck on? And I think where I'm getting that source of deliberateness from is being Spotify playlists of music for my for my weekly Substack newsletter. And I'm really caring about the transitions and the sequence of the songs and do the lyrics relate to each other. That very much feels like making mixtapes back in the day. So it's interesting that in this case, the technology, you know, the MP3 versus the, the stream doesn't matter so much. It's much more the how am I using the tool. I had a very interesting experience that connects to I suppose a little bit of this idea of discovery, right? Dylan saying that you, it's too easy, so you don't care. You're not diving into it. You feeling like you discover more when you're thinking of a playlist to put together than just going through 500 gigabytes. I had to check. I have 175 gigabytes. 
And iTunes will still, if you show the like status thing, it'll show you how many items. I have 25,490 songs and it could play for 103.6 days continuously. Yeah, but neither of us are going to listen to all that music, Um, right? Occasionally, I will just hit shuffle and you know, find really weird surprises, things I didn't even remember were there. And that can be a little bit fun. But my biggest discovery around streaming this weekend was my Amazon smart speaker. The display of the music, it was playing glitched out. I asked it for Cole Porter songs. It was playing Cole Porter songs, but the albums and songs it showed on the screen were unrelated. And it suddenly showed like uh, this 50s singer called Peggy Lee with an album called black coffee. And I was like, Oh, that's a great name. So I looked it up and I discovered a musician that I'd completely forgotten about. And that was cool, but it was because of a glitch. I'm going to jump a little sideways here to talk about my experience with physical media, not, not streaming services. So I had two versions of this and I was, I was a little bit lax on what the rules meant for me and my experiment. My main objective was I have a large collection of Blu-rays and DVDs. Um, So I was like, I'm just going to start using them again. And there was a part of doing it that that didn't feel frustrating. It felt lovely. I enjoyed browsing my shelf, looking at the the titles in a way that I never do looking at a Netflix, you know, list of movies or TV shows or whatever other streaming service. So I really enjoyed that process. And I liked the little ritual of taking it out and putting it in the tray of my blu-ray player and hitting the button and it physically going in it was very similar to how i feel about playing vinyl records and which i've spoken about before in another episode so that was great where it was an absolute pain in the ass was with series because i forgot that uh, an entire season of a series would maybe go on five or six blu-rays or dvds so Binging became a much more tedious process of getting up and that I fucking hated. I hated that I had to physically swap discs because each one only fits three, maybe four episodes of the series that I was watching, which in this case was Babylon 5. I have a pretty large Plex library of films I've ripped, gotten from friends, downloaded, whatever. HBO has gotten rid of a ton of great shows that they had because the new owners, Discovery, who suck, are completely like in shitifying, as Corey Doctor calls it, their service because they don't want to pay, pay royalty on older shows. So they got rid of Westworld, for example, all four seasons, poof, gone. You can't watch them on HBO anymore. It's their show. They own it. It wasn't a licensing deal. They're just like, we don't want to pay the creators any more royalties. So we're going to get it off of our service. And I was suddenly profoundly grateful for my eight terabyte Plex library. Because even though I still pay for HBO and Netflix and Prime and a bunch of other ones, I realized that my really favorite stuff, my favorite shows, like I don't have to worry. I can still rewatch the West Wing for the 50th time three years from now, even if it's gone from streaming services because I have my copy of it. You you and I are, are both so neurotic about backups. And I think that it often serves us well. And you never know. I mean, here's an example of content that you thought you could depend on and then poof, it's gone. And that is true. You know, all of our playlists that we have on Spotify, um, our Netflix 
favorite, like all of these things that we just like, oh yeah, that, that content is going to be there in the future when I want to revisit it. Even your Kindle library, well, it's not a guarantee. And the way that they write the terms of service, you're not the complete owner of it. So the types of backups that we do, where we take those things off of the Kindle and then we put it into our Calibre library. I, I love knowing that if the whole thing implodes, I still have a local copy. I have an old Kindle Voyage that I'd forgotten about, which I found in a drawer. Still works perfectly. It's not as fast as my current Kindle. So I realized that what I was just going to do is dump my entire Calibre library into it and then shut it off and put it back in a drawer so that I had like an actual backup tied to a device that could read it where all I would ever need is to just charge it up again. And that made me very happy. Like it felt like a like the like the the vault of seeds that they have in Sweden or Norway or wherever exactly exactly right just like just store one of everything somewhere i want to make one last link before we wrap up um what you said about just the user experience of going and selecting the dvd and putting it into the device pressing play uh when netflix first pivoted from being a company that sent you DVDs right, to being a streaming service. Yeah, it's a long time ago. I remember the user interface to begin with was basically like, you've got a bunch of DVDs on your screen and you click one and then that will allow you to start watching it. And the user interface has changed so much, right? Now you you turn it on and then just boom, there are things that are playing. The sound's on, you're hearing clips and they're obviously very intentional about what are the clips? Who are the characters? What are the facial expressions that they're making? In fact, when it's just images, the yep. images are personalized for you. So not Covered. every Netflix user yeah. sees the same image, um, which, you know, it's what, like we all have the same DVD, right? It's not personalized for you. And I, I really experienced this as I was going back and forth. So this was my last experiment with a newspaper. Every morning I read both the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. And often I read them in the paper version. And I have like my process of user experience. And I like the user interface of the print product. The apps, the Wall Street Journal app for the iPad is exactly like the newspaper. It just, it mimics it completely. And so I have the same workflow. The New York Times is completely different. The New York Times is all algorithmic. They really push the for you section. It's just as much a gaming app at this point with like their Wordle yep. and crossword puzzles and all the games that they have as it is like a news app. And I really struggle with it. And, you know, it reminded me how 10, 15 years ago, as a digital media consultant, I would have criticized the Wall Street Journal for just following the exact same design as their print newspaper, rather than thinking about all the new possibilities that you can do with digital. And then I would point to New York Times as like, here's, here's a place where they're really maximizing engagement by having the games and having the customized news feed just for you. But now it's just such a relief to be able to open the iPad app. I much prefer the Wall Street Journal and just being able to read uninterrupted, not wanting to jump around a bunch, not having it feel like this is just for me, but that it's a common reading experience that I'm having with other people. It was surprising for me that I've, I've completely changed. Craig Maud talks a lot about the importance of edges in things. And I think that that's one of those things that fortunately I think is being re-embraced. When the iPad came out, Wired did a bunch of digital versions of the magazine that weighed like two gigabytes and had video covers. It was, it was this idea of what a 
magazine in the future should be. And it was awful. I want to close with one question that I leave sort of hanging in the air to anybody who listens to this, but also for ourselves, which is basically, and I'm going to keep going back to that motorcycle book because I love the, the framing. Where are you comfortable being stuck in? Because I think that's really what it boils down to. We have different proclivities and different spaces in which we are frustrated if there's friction and others where we're perfectly willing to to allow for that friction to exist within it, to work our way through it to the other side, and then to reap the the satisfaction which comes from having done so. So I I love that. I love that idea. I really do hope that somebody shares what they're happy being stuck in. I love that too. I'm glad that we experimented on ourselves, or tried to at least. Thank you, everyone, yet again. We are evolving like all things do the 12 inquiries so we may or may not have twitter spaces we may or may not have twitter at 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 this point who knows but as always we're happy to continue the conversation anywhere you can find us